My name's Chris, I'm the pastor um, for the church. I'm going to be sharing just some words today. And I want to take us back to 2016 um, as we begin, going back to the election of uh, Donald Trump. And in the wake of the election of Donald Trump, there was a reaction for a number of people, particularly um, young evangelicals in the state, kicking away from their more conservative church backgrounds. There had been a ruminating feeling for a number of people for some time that somehow the church that they had grown up with didn't seem to be matching up with their vision of Jesus. And in many ways, this was a moment for many of these individuals to say, it's time for us to go. And there were quite a few issues which may be familiar to a number of us present here that they particularly were feeling aggrieved about authoritarian or sometimes abusive um, leadership um, uh, situations uh, racism born out of unspoken unnamed and unrepented for white privilege misogyny deep understandings of the pain and experience of the LGBT community and what they saw as an unquestioning affiliation with Republican political ideals and some of these individuals began to form into kind of a network group on the internet around the um, title exvangelical those who had grown up in largely white evangelical American churches, but said we are now rejecting this and moving in. And really their disaffection in many ways tapped into a wider concern in culture and in the church around how Christians were being perceived. There was a study done in 2007 um, with a book coming out of it called Unchristian by a guy called David Kinnaman, who, who wrote these words um, after, a, after a season of significant surveying. In our national surveys with young, by which he meant 16 to 29 year olds, some of us no longer fall into that, which is rather sad, but nonetheless, we found that the three most common perceptions of present day Christianity are anti-homosexual, an image held by 91% of young outsiders, judgmental, 87%, and hypocritical, 85%. These big three are followed by the following negative perceptions, embraced by a majority of young adults, old fashioned, too involved in politics, out of touch with reality, insensitive to others, boring, not accepting of other faiths, and confusing. When they think of the Christian faith, these are the images that come to mind. This is what a new generation really thinks about Christianity. The exvangelical movement started to gather momentum online around the hashtag exvangelical and developed into a podcast sharing some of the views and stories of those who were involved with this. By April 2019, the podcast was getting 13,000 downloads every month. It was tapping into something. And the critique was that the conservative church was departing from some essential elements of what it is to be a good person in the world today. However, as we track the movement, what we see is in the rejection of the conservative and some broken elements of the church, there was a wholesale embrace of progressive and very secular ideas. Just to quote a couple of the lead founders of this movement, Blake Chastain, um, in his article, Exvangelical, A Working Definition, said this, there's no requisite theological creed. You will find progressive Christians, atheists, agnostics, Wiccans, and other spiritual expressions within this community. An equal respect and understanding is expected because our shared socio-cultural heritage binds us together. We have much in common and much to learn from one another. One of the common questions that comes up when people stumble across the term exvangelical is, but what do you believe now? Um, the answer, 
Each person follows their own convictions. Christopher Stroop, another key leader in the movement, said, when Christian nationalists are in power and perpetrating horrors, we should oppose their um, dominionism, not with a different reading of the Bible, but with a robust defense of pluralism and secularism. The swing that had taken place was radical. It was a move from we are rejecting some things that we see as broken in what we view as contemporary Christian conservatism, but it was a massive swing the other way, essentially into a form of secular pluralism that said anything goes. You can come here, whatever your belief structures, and be a part of us. It doesn't really matter. Truth is relative. You can believe what you want to believe. Now, when we start talking like this, it can raise anxiety in us, right? Partly, I think, it raises anxiety because we start thinking, which side of this do I need to find myself on? Which one do I need to choose? Partly for some of you as well, you're thinking, which side is the pastor going to come down on? And, uh, and, and am I going to find him agreeing with the story that I'm bringing to this? Actually, what we find in these two rather extreme kind of polarized views is that we are in a world of competing stories. We are in a world of competing stories. We only have to log on to our social media accounts and we find there are so many different stories and ideas about the world. What is good, what is true, what is right. And into this place, we as Christians need to have a robust, real, honest position. Into this place, we're going to invite the story of Jesus. If you've um, got a Bible with you, we're going to just flick to a different passage before we get to the 2 Corinthians one. Because Jesus also found himself in a culture where there were radically polarised views. But he didn't approach them maybe in the way that we might think, but did so with an extraordinarily different approach. We're going to go to Mark chapter 12. And I'm going to take us through verse 13 to verse 17, where we just find a story of Jesus in the city of Jerusalem, where he's causing a stir through his behaviour and teaching goes like this. Later, we read, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians. The Herodians were a political group who supported King Herod, who was the king who was appointed by the Romans. They sent the Pharisees and Herodians to catch Jesus in his words. They came to him and said, teacher, we know that you were a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? Now, this is a really, really hot question at the time. And it's very interesting when we look at the two groups of people who come. Because there were some people who said, look, our situation is broken. It's messy. We're occupied by the Romans. But the best thing we can do if we want to live well is to pacify them. We pay the taxes. We accept the king that they have appointed, King Herod. And we say we will try to live as best we can within this messy situation by paying the taxes. That's the law. Don't upset the Romans. Keep the peace. But then there were other people who said, this is an occupying, invading people who are not welcome here. To pay taxes to Caesar is to say we agree that they should be here. The, the question essentially was, that one, was one of the many questions which polarized the Herodians and the Pharisees and puts Jesus on the spot. Which way is he going to go? Is he going to go in favor of Caesar and the Herodians and paying the taxes and be a sellout to the ways of Judaism? Or is he going to get himself into serious political trouble and say you shouldn't pay taxes? They want the binary choice between him. But Jesus has a different way. But Jesus knew, we read on, their hypocrisy. 
Why are you trying to trap me? He asked. Bring me a denarius, which was a kind of coin, and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. I think so many of us, when we talk to people, when we go for those uncomfortable discussions at the dinner table with our families and Brexit comes up or Harry and Meghan comes up or whatever it might be that divides our families, then we, we find ourselves between these kind of juxtaposed polar opposites. And really, when we dig down deeper, we find that beneath them, often it's not bad people competing with one evil idea against a good idea, but actually there are people who are trying to find a good way forward, the best way forward they can, and come into some broken values. Whether they are the Herodians who are saying, we just want to keep the peace. We just want to keep the peace. Rome's bought some good things. If we just pay the taxes, they're building great roads and aqueducts, and it's, it's better in some ways. Or whether they're the Pharisees saying, no, we need to religiously guard our identity and our independence. These people didn't come from trying to get it wrong. They came from trying to get it right. But Jesus interrupts with this totally different way of doing it. He brings in a third way. He cuts to the heart of the issue and exposes the deeper need of their hearts. This is not primarily an issue of deciding whether or not you pay the tax. This is primarily an issue of your worship. This is primarily an issue of what is the deepest, deepest value in your life. This is primarily a a gut-searching question of what is the most important thing to us as humanity. He takes it out of the false dichotomy of right and wrong that they've created through the question and brings it into the dynamics of kingdom paradigms of worship, honour and wisdom. In the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians that Nolatande read to us, he's not fighting with the weapons of the world, but rather with divine power to to demolish strongholds. He's bringing in a heavenly perspective. When Jesus, in other words, is confronted with the competing stories of the world, he brings a heavenly perspective into that moment, and it changes everything, and those listening to him leave amazed. Jesus does something extraordinary. He does something which no one has done to this point in this conversation. Rather than being reactive against the wounds they see in society, rather than seeing the problems about the society and trying to fix it with broken human means, he is proactive in the things of the kingdom. He recognises there is a different place that he is living from. And rather than reacting to the pain of everything around him, he brings in a fresh perspective of the kingdom, one that truly brings healing and life. Speaking particularly into our polarised political landscape at the moment, um, former bishop Tom Wright writes these words, a central part of our vocation is prayerfully and thoughtfully to remind people with power, otherwise official, such as government ministers and unofficial backstreet bullies, that there is a different way to to be human, a true way, the Jesus way. This doesn't mean electing into office someone who shares our particular agenda that might or might not be appropriate. But it means being prepared, whoever the current officials are, to do what Jesus did with Pontius Pilate, confront them with a different vision of kingdom, truth, and power. Now, there's a very real obstacle for us here that we just need to name. 
Um, it would be an understatement to say that our society isn't very strong on listening, right? <laughs> we're really good at saying things, but we're not always very strong on listening. Um, we have all um, had too many conversations, have watched the social dilemma, et cetera, et cetera, and become aware that that which we receive on our social media news feeds is fed to us by algorithms, largely giving us things that we know that we will agree with. Um, some have called this the filter bubble, filtering our information to give us what we will agree, agree with. When we form a view, we tend to then look for information that will support that view. Psychologists call this confirmation bias. But the result of this subtly, so subtly, is that we then so often look to find ideas in the Bible that simply agree with what we already think. And when it comes to Christian discipleship, rather than coming from a start place of, Lord, we seek your will, your perspective, your truth on all things, we come saying, actually, we already have certain ideas. We've been forming these unconsciously and consciously for so much time. And we look for Jesus to agree with that which we already think. How can we find a way we often, I think, unconsciously go to? How can we just find a way of making Jesus agree with me? We filter out the things he says that we find awkward. We avoid those things. And we essentially become masters of our own narrative. It's so easy to create a Jesus in the image of our own existing worldview, rather than be open to what may he want to speak to us about, which is distinct from all things we see in the world. At the end of Acts, um, right at the end of Acts, we find Paul in the city of Rome, and he's, uh, he's been taken there as a prisoner, and he's at now at the kind of epicenter of the empire, the big city where everything happens, and he's speaking there, and he quotes some powerful words from Isaiah chapter 6, which rings so true for our age. He quotes these words. Go to this people and say, you will be ever hearing but never understanding. You'll be ever seeing but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn and I would heal them. Doesn't this ring so true of our age? We harden our hearts. I think what I already think. We close our ears. I don't want to hear a different perspective and we shut our eyes. I don't want to see things differently. But in the middle of this passage, the prophetic longing is that you would be soft of heart and open of ear and open of eyes to see what is God speaking into this situation because therein lies our healing. The words of Paul to Timothy in another part of the New Testament just strike scarily true of our age. 2 Timothy 4 verse 3, he writes these words, For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. So they will turn their ears away from truth and turn aside to myths. This is a deep, deep question for discipleship of our age. We live in an age of noisily competing stories. There are so many different issues out there that are deeply important, that are crucial, that God has an opinion on. But so often in our discipleship, we feel drawn to jump into one of the quick polar opposites, the caricatures of the other opinion, the anger, the wrath, and the fast, fast speaking that is going on, rather than saying, Lord Jesus, we need to surrender into what is your way of doing this. 
Paul in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 3 to 5, which Nolatando read um, that passage for us, goes right to the heart of this. Let's just revisit those words again, because this is so crucial for us. For though we live in the world, Paul said, though we live in the world, he recognises we are in a context where there is a lot going on around us. There is a lot happening. There's a lot of noise. There's a lot of voices. There's a culture. There's lots of ideas. We do not wage war as the world does, he says. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Paul speaks about being in a different war, not between progressive and conservative, not between Brexit and Remain, not not between many of the things that we see as the polarizing ideas in our society, but rather between the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of the world. He sees a distinction that we are looking to live from heaven towards the earth with different weapons, not with joining the fray of noisy arguments, but coming with the different simple things of truth. And it all really comes down to one thing, he says, one thing. We take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. We watch all of our thought life, all of the things that we process and long for and think on and dream of, all the things we consume and read and listen to, but the intention of it is obedience to Christ. Obedience to Christ. I think this is one of the great discipleship needs maybe of our age is that we so easily we so easily look for a Jesus who will fit my preferences a Jesus who will agree with my ideas a Jesus who will ordain and bless what actually I already think what Jesus is inviting from us is to be a people who will make our very thoughts obedient to him who say, actually, we are not just going to pick from the noisy voices in the world, but we will make our very thought life obedient to his way. Because like Jesus, we need to be a people who live from the wisdom of heaven into the world, rather than just joining the noisy fray of the world. The question here, and I know that what I've said will spark a great many questions about the issues. They are important. Just in this past week, massive question of abortion has just come up again, so close in the States. What I want to talk to us, uh, any one of the issues that we've named, we could give multiple qu- teachings on and we would barely even scratch the, <laughs> scratch the beginning of talking about them. But what I wanted to begin with today is that actually this begins with our posture. This begins with a posture. Because we can come to any question with a pre-existent opinion, which we say, actually, I don't want this challenged. Or we can come with a posture of make it obedient to Christ. We're willing to lay down what we think. We're willing to lay down what we value. We're willing to surrender our story that we may live in his. Because he is Lord and he knows better. And we come as a people saying we want to be formed deeply by him and his truth. Last week, um, we continued just looking at a discipleship diagram, which is going to pop up on the screen. And one of the things that we said was surrendering our story to Jesus, surrendering our story to Jesus. And as we land, I just want to look at one way that we do this is asking the question around what are our influences? 
What is influencing our inner narrative? What is influencing our view of what is true and what is false and what is right and what is wrong? Because this is a really key question, and it has always been a really key question for the people of God. In the very first Psalm, we read these words. Psalm 1, verse 1 to 3. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. The psalmist wants to go straight to this very issue. Where are we walking? Where are we standing? Where are we sitting? Because those places are the places of what is influencing your heart, what is shaping our minds, what is leading us one way or the other, what is leading our story. Our question for us is what influences our worldview? The most recent statistic I've read on this, and I've read quite a few different ones, so um, yeah, take, take this with a pinch of salt, but the UK average apparently for being on our phones is um, every day is three hours and 23 minutes. Every day, three hours and 23 minutes. And if we just think through that and the implications of that, how many tweets and podcasts and blogs, um, how many adverts, TV shows, Netflix series, etc., that we can add on top of that? How many of these things are we consuming as we scroll away through the day, as we flick and channel swap and just consume content? This stuff is, is formational upon our soul. It's exposure and it is influence. And what I want to really just bring us back to is just what, maybe the practice where this sim like most simply, most obviously plays out. And it's where the psalmist goes. Because the psalmist speaks and encourages us day and night to have our minds and our hearts set upon the law of the Lord, to go back to the scriptures. To say, actually, if we are to be a people who are formed into the story of God, then we need to be in the story of God. If we are to be a people who are living with heavenly wisdom, then we need to be informed by heavenly wisdom rather than simply all the competing narratives of the world. If we are to bring distinct values, attitudes and truth into any situation, then actually what we soak our souls on is so key. Now, as I name this, I am really aware I speak to a room full of people who all of you, to the last one of us, will probably say we're fairly busy, right? <laughs> and we're not looking for more to do. Actually, our encouragement within any of the practices is not take something else on, but actually, what are you taking out? If we are hitting anywhere near the average of three hours and 23 minutes a day on our phones, we've got some screen time we can put down. The question of what is influencing our soul is absolutely crucial. Your spiritual life, if we are in the word of God, 10 minutes a day, 20 minutes a day, 30 minutes a day, we'll be in a completely different place in months and years to come than if we continue thinking, actually, I'll, I'll sort of put it on the back burner and maybe next week and hopefully I'll read the Bible at some point on Sunday. Of course we will. Reading the scriptures is where this begins. Because it's all very well saying we need to bring heavenly wisdom in. But actually, heavenly wisdom doesn't tend to just come in the spur of the moment. Heavenly wisdom tends to come from lifestyles that say we will be constantly immersed in the things that are true and distinct. We will, in partnership with the Spirit of God, say, would you teach me a new way of looking, a new way of seeing, a new way of believing? Sure, when we read the scriptures, you'll hit hard questions. You will. It's okay. Keep going. <laughs> 
Sure, you'll hit dry spells where you're like, okay, I felt like I haven't got anything out of this for a while. Press on and press in because actually in the continued showing up, you grow. There'll be days where you disagree with what you read. And guys, this sometimes is where the real gold is because this is where the question comes to us. Are we looking for a Jesus who will imitate and reflect my own existing views? Or am I willing to say, Lord, might you form me into something different? Is there a new way of looking at the world that I hadn't seen? When we come to the scriptures, we come to read surrendered. Lord, you are my king. Jesus, you are my Lord. I want to live my life with your worldview. I want to live my life with your values. And when the cacophony of noise of all the competing opinions come, I don't want to just jump into the fray shouting on one side or the other. I want to, like Jesus, be a person of distinct wisdom, with deeper understanding, with greater nuance, with deep, deep compassion. What influences our soul? is so crucial for who we become. John Mark Comer writes these words, the goal of reading scripture is not information, but spiritual formation, to take on the mind of Christ. This means to actually think like Jesus thinks, to fill your mind with the thoughts of God so regularly and deeply that it literally rewires your brain, and from there your whole person. The key is not just to think about scripture, but to think scripture. The stakes here are high, and the descriptions we find in the scriptures are beautiful. <laughs> They're so beautiful. Psalm 1, like a tree that is planted by streams of water, bearing fruit in and out of season, whose leaf does not wither. I just think so often, actually, my life just feels like there's some withering leaves on there and it's just nowhere near as fruitful as I want to see it being. Do I feel like I'm planted by streams of water? Sometimes, but not other times. But how do we get there? Our delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law we meditate day and night. When we go to Isaiah's words that Paul spoke in Rome at the end of Acts, like actually, this is for our healing. This is for our life. He doesn't do this or call us to this because he wants to restrict or gives hard tasks, but he wants us to be a people whose lives are just inflamed with goodness, truth, life, freedom, and joy. For such is the way of those who immerse themselves in the story of God. Shall we stand together? And let's just take a moment because um, we're just all so aware, I think, of the noise and the noise of questions that are so important. But what this really, really boils down to is a question of worship and surrender and lordship. To being a people who, who are not wedded to religious conservatism or to progressive ideals, but who are wedded to Jesus, who are not obsessed with the rights and wrongs of the culture, but who are obsessed with the one in whom all the answers and all the best ways are found. To be a people who don't just pick the best arguments of the world, but who carry a different spirit 
and a different story into every argument because that's what Jesus did and that's what he does. And so, guys, my suggestion for us just as we begin to respond is actually that we just, um, we just bring him our openness and we bring him our surrender. Which is as simple as to say, Lord, I'm, I'm willing to let go of every thought in my mind that is not of you. I want to take them captive. And I want my thoughts to be obedient to you. says in James chapter 3 but the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure then peace loving considerate submissive full of mercy and good fruit impartial and sincere peacemakers who sow in peace reap up a harvest of righteousness